Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. What's up, Internet? And welcome back to the Engadget Podcast. I'm senior editor Devendra Hardwar. I'm reviews editor Sherlyn Lowe. And we are back from CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, or actually... It's not even called the Consumer Electronics Show anymore. It's just they don't want you to say. They don't want you to say it. It's just CES, a weird, a weird event where a ton of tech is showing up. Engadget is here with most of our crew. We've been here for over a week, just feverishly writing everything up that we're seeing. And today we're going to chat about some of that. Feverishly, quite literally, in some of our cases. Oh yes, there's not a CS that goes by without somebody sick in their hotel room and just down and out for the count. Uh, we did our best not to get sick. I brought it though, so <laughs> I brought it upon myself. As always, if you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe to the Engadget Podcast on your podcatcher of choice. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes. All that stuff is really helpful because it tells us people are actually listening. Now, Sherlyn, um, we know how much you love CES. I think everybody knows how much I love CES. What are your first broad takes out of the show? How has it been, CES 2020? Every CES is a dang blur. <laughs> Every CES is like, why? I don't feel there's co- coherent themes at all. And I think because of the scope of it is so huge that I, I kind of by default have to see a lot of different things and nothing is really unified this year seemed like it was more about, you know, wild-looking cars uh, than anything else. And for me personally, it was more about, like, what my like coverage points were. So PCs, laptops, and that sort of stuff. I don't know about you. Do you, like, view that way every year or what? <laughs> yeah, I think you're right, Trillin. There rarely is a narrative because it's not like these companies all get together and have conversations about each other because they're all just trying to outdo each other. So we saw a couple surprises, like the Sony car, and we'll talk more about that. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. I think for us, what we're mainly interested in, uh, broadly are computers, cars, and TVs. And on the computer front, there's a lot of cool stuff kind of continuing what we saw from Computex. Um, we saw foldable PCs, we saw dual screen PCs, and, you know, a bunch of like individual announcements of computers and the hardware that goes in them, some stuff from Intel and AMD that I think were all really interesting. What stood out for you on the computer front? Stood out? I mean, I, everything was foldable. I think what stood out in terms of surprising and I didn't expect it was the Intel um, horseshoe bend concept because... I didn't get briefed ahead of CES well, what about is it? the Intel thing. It is a concept device, um, a foldable screen PC, um, which is basically what we've seen before, um, but bigger. So it's a 17.3-inch uh, folding tablet PC, and it is big, <laughs> like... Literally. It's um, big and it's folding. Well, and the interesting thing, too, is it's running Intel's next generation Tiger Lake CPU Tiger platform, Lakes, too. Yeah, so it's like UP4. a showpiece in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, I guess that was a surprise. By foldables themselves, I wasn't that like amazed or like 
taken because I thought they were coming. I've seen the phones. Um, Lenovo did announce the first ever foldable PC that's available for sale. It's going to be in retail for $2,500 <laughs> in like the middle of this year. Um, and it's like the first ever company what's to it, be able What's to... it called specifically? It is called the ThinkPad X1 Fold, which... Oh boy. Wow, what a what an unexpected name. And I do feel like if you name your product Fold, you're just cursing your product. So it's like right. it's like the Galaxy Fold. It is like this is the curse of the Fold. It is a big chunky thing that's way too expensive. But it's, hey, they're releasing it, so that's something. Yeah, and I mean the whole thing that Lenovo was showing off with the ThinkPad X1 Fold were the ecosystem of accessories it made for the device. So like a stand I mean, there's a kickstand built into the ThinkPad X1 Fold, but there's a separate stand if you want to prop it up at a higher <laughs> angle, if you want to use it as an all-in-one at your desk. Um, they made this little keyboard that f- slots in between the two halves of the screen when you try to fold the, the um, X1 Fold in half. And um, there's also a pen. But for that $2,500 base price, you're getting none of those extras <laughs> because they haven't decided really how much to price those uh-huh. things yet. So anyway, I... I think it looks kind of unrefined. Um, it's it's ready. It works. But I don't know that a lot of people are going to buy it. And I don't think that Lenovo want, needs people to go out in droves and buy this thing. This is really like an early adopter kind of a product. Yeah. And kind of a, I don't know, kind of a pointless release, I guess. It just like get it out there. It's nice. It's just I'm tired of seeing the stuff from PC companies. I think more realistically, I saw some stuff from Asus, which is... It's weird to see stuff from Asus because they're not technically participating in CES, but a lot of companies have events around the show, but aren't official participants. Those so, yeah, yeah, it's uh, Asus is not officially a participant of CES. HP isn't, and a lot of that has to do with these companies just being cheap, I think, <gasps> and just not paying the While exhibition fees. I mean, it's that, and also like the CTA. I feel like it's a, it's a bit of a I don't know. It's a bit of a racket because these companies have to participate to get the CES awards and things like that. Uh, At Asus, I saw the ZenBook Duo, which is a slightly smaller version of their whole dual screen computer idea. It's an Ultrabook with a, you know, it has a 13 inch screen like most other computers, but below it, it has a really wide 12 inch screen. So basically the younger, smaller sibling to the ZenBook Pro Duo I reviewed last year. And that machine, it was really interesting, but it was kind of chunky. It was five and a half pounds. It was really thick. Not something I could easily recommend. This thing is like 3.3 pounds. It feels really good. Has like a uh, NVIDIA MX250 graphics. So not great, but you could play Overwatch or something. Uh, and the dual screen is good. Like it works well. It's very portable. I think this one is going to be a much bigger seller to the whole idea of what you could do with the dual screen PC. Uh, the That wide second screen can fit up to three little windows or one really wide big window. Um, just based on what I saw from the ZenBook Pro, I think it looks really intriguing. So, so I yeah. have a question, right? Basically, they, they, they took something off of like what, a 15-inch computer and squeezed it onto the 13-inch mm-hmm. guy. And, you've all, and you basically half of that bottom, like the keyboard deck is given to this 12-inch mm-hmm. wide screen. Is the rest of the keyboard layout, like, what is what is that like? Is there a room for a trackpad? Is, well, is it cramped yeah. to type on? I, th- I think that's the problem. So when Asus does this, they did this with the Zephyrus line, too. They move the keyboard all the way to the front of the computer, like, basically right up to the edge. And then the trackpad, instead of being, like, horizontal, it is a little vertical sliver of something that you can use. I'm not a fan of that layout. The keyboard on this thing didn't feel great. Uh, the trackpad is really tiny. 
you know this is a computer where you'll probably be using a mouse most of the time and you'll definitely need a wrist pad to type comfortably uh but they they got the concept out there so i, I feel like it is more feasible than something like the you know thinkpad fold and it probably won't it definitely won't be as expensive too i think that's the thing with these like devices and getting them out there earlier too is like lenovo's part of the point lenovo um uh, of Lenovo releasing is so early is that like it will have that advantage over its competitors in learning what like a general public user is going to experience with this and then that like I think is a key part of mm-hmm. you know improving your product because yeah your your lab testers are going to you know like like try it and like try to refine it and whatever but nothing says like testing you know like throwing it at someone who has never been <laughs> you know, in touch with this product at all. Sure. And then breaking it a million different ways that you could never even have imagined, like, when you were making the thing, because you know where the motherboard goes. You know better than to touch a certain thing. Like, Lenovo and Asus in pushing these sorts of concept devices out to a wider public audience, I think are going to learn a lot. That's, I'm sure, I just don't think, that's what concept devices are for. That's what, like, testing is for. Like, you can you can do this testing, give I it to, like... literally just said why they should give it to an average Joe, though. Yeah, yeah, give it, but no, I'm saying, the problem right now is that they're selling it for so much money. But yeah, yeah. giving it to the average Joe is a problem, but, you well, know, that's should just, that's like, run more, I don't know, focus groups. <laughs> that's the thing, they don't know what to focus on until people get their hands on it. I just think, like, selling these things for so much money when... There's not going to be much support. They're definitely going to break. And these companies are also early on it. It feels like only kind of crazy rich people will buy them, which is not an average Joe. You know, there are people who want to make these things succeed. There are people who want to just feel like, oh, they have the first foldable PC. So they'll, you know, overlook some of the flaws. They won't talk about the real issues. But I agree with you. Average Joes actually would be better. Um, but th- that would involve just getting these things out. So for me, I the foldables were great, but I was also surprised to see Samsung um, announce their Chromebook at CES. I mean, I wasn't... I knew it was coming because I saw the press release ahead of time, but I think I was surprised by how much I liked it. It's the Galaxy Chromebook. It's the first Project Athena classified Chromebook. And, I mean, Intel's Project Athena means, like... I mean, they've made some really nice laptops, basically, in that mm-hmm. category. And it's just... It's hot red. They call it Siesta <laughs> Red, I think. And it's super thin. And then it's got an, a 4K AMOLED because people watch Netflix on Chromebooks. Uh-huh. Um, uses an Intel uh, Core i5 Comet Lake, I believe, uh, chipset. And so, very high-end. I mean... Well, people will balk at the price. I think it's nine hundred and ninety nine dollars. Davinci's already yelled at Samsung. Chromebooks, like it was, I saw this thing. It looks very nice. I don't, just don't think Chromebooks should ever be full computer price no, like that because they're just not as useful. But the okay. whole thing about Chrome and Chrome OS and Chromebooks are that the people, according to all the people who make these devices, which is largely Google and then its partners like mm-hmm. Samsung and Lenovo, um, is that yeah, these kids grew up using Chrome OS in their schools and everything. They don't want to learn a new operating system, according according to the companies. And then they want machines that look, you know, fancy for these, like, new professional jobs they're getting. I don't know. I mean, apparently there's a there's, there's a target audience and there's people who will go out and buy these things. I'm, I'm just... sure. I'm sure there is. I just think as as somebody, you know, we, we know the industry. We kind of know what these machines can do. I just think, like... I'm fundamentally opposed to this idea because also those kids, yeah, they're raised on Chrome OS or something because those were nice cheap notebooks, but to actually work 
in the professional world like you need to know like a, f- like a full operator you need right. to know how Macs work you need to know how windows works you need to like run real programs you're not going to be running all the professional programs you need in your job or whatever or even in your school uh from a chromebook so I've never, that's the whole idea i've never moved from a like chrome os to pc or mac and i don't know what that learning curve would be like is that is it really that hard to like no i mean you you would learn a new computer but then it's like i think for a i can imagine a college student trying to be like oh i need a computer for four years i'll just get this chromebook and then within you know a couple weeks or something their courses need something like photoshop their courses need bigger more fundamental things and i just think it's a bad idea to invest so much in chrome os like as a sub $500 machine where you just take it around and type on it and use it for the web. That's great. As a $1,000 machine, which will probably be somebody's primary computer, uh, like that sounds crazy to me. But that's me. Like it's just something I would never advise people do. Uh, I've definitely talked to a lot of people who are like, they spend a lot of money on their Chromebook. They want to do more with it. It doesn't run any of the apps that they need for work or for school. And they're just screwed because all they got is Chrome. I do think that Chromebooks serve the their best purpose is as like a secondary device to take mm-hmm. on the go. But um, the other major like there's, I still like it a lot. I mean, I hope I wish the price was a little lower. Um, and you know, Samsung's laptops look really really nice these days. So, kudos to them. Uh, yeah. The the major drawback for me on the Chromebook is the battery life is not as long as like other systems because of that 4K AMOLED. I don't know. <sighs> it's a it's an interesting product. It was surprising that I liked it. Um. So yeah. there you go. I CES. could do I could do a whole f- episode on 4K OLED screens, or at least 4K screens on laptops, and like how pointless they are. But also on a Chromebook, it's killing your battery life. It's like that's all you got. That's all it's, you got it, to sell apparently us. Apparently, people want to watch their YouTubers. They want to watch your dumpling YouTube show in 4K. Ma- you yeah. know, 4K don't matter. 4K don't matter on a 13-inch screen. Uh, you also saw the Acer Easel, right? I did. That one was a 15-inch uh, laptop with a hinge that lets you flip the screen like a, I guess, like an easel. Oh, yeah. oh they did that. They did that last they've year. They've done yeah. that, but mm-hmm. the, um, the they've up, they've refined the screen a little bit, so it's not, um, it's not like only on two pivot points. It's basically an entire bar across the back of the lid. Um, is the hinge and you can I mean we've seen the hinge design allows you to do things like pull it closer to you and then prop it up at an angle so that you're just like using only the trackpad one or the touchscreen when looking at the screen so let me let me paint the picture here for you because I reviewed the Predator Triton 900 last year the hinge is this thing where on a typical convertible PC you kind of just like take the screen and you flip it you kind of fold it backwards so that it turns into a tablet where you can like tent the computer but with this weird easel thing, like, you can actually spin it. It's hard to describe. Like, it kind of spins on an axis to twist around. So, like Sherlyn is describing, you can move the screen around a bit. I I found it kind of baffling. I just don't know why anybody would pay extra for something like this. Yeah, know? I don't know that they're going to be asked to pay extra for the hinge. I think that this is, I mean, the easel device is part of Acer's Concept B line of like creator oh, so PCs. it'll always be expensive so it's gonna be yeah exactly you're already <laughs> okay. shelling out extra for this they're just throwing in a fancy hinge for you um i mean if you if you want to use your laptop as a mini desktop replacement that looks very eye-catching and can serve multiple tiers of entrees because that's what it looks like when you flip it the the top the screen out like mm-hmm. horizontally and then like just have it there then yeah i mean do that <laughs> 
And just briefly, um, we saw some HP stuff ahead of CES. Uh, they're not officially part of the show, so I couldn't nominate them for awards or anything. But check out the review of the HP Envy 32 All-in-One, which is this big, massive thing. Uh, I got the review out and done right before CES. Uh, it's a really cool entertainment all-in-one. I just really wish uh, they don't... Like, these companies build these this nice hardware... And it comes with one of the worst keyboards I've ever felt. One of the cheapest mice I've ever felt. I don't understand why you'd build a premium product and just go cheap like that. Yeah, uh, I think they're expecting you to just pay more and get your better one. Like, or I that mean, you already have a good in one. that case, like, I just, I don't know. I could see the argument of just including something really cheap so it doesn't hit the overall cost. But at the same time, if you're delivering a premium experience, like, just give me, give me something, a slightly better Logitech mouse or keyboard or something. So powering all these new computers, uh, you know, are chips from Intel and AMD. I spent a lot of time with both companies at CES this year. Uh, Intel has some cool stuff. They have the Nook 9 Extreme, which is the uh, it is a larger version of their Nook devices. And these things are hard to explain. They're DIY kits. They come with CPUs, but you have to add your own memory, storage, and OS. They're just like... PCs in a box. Yeah, but a they're tiny basically box. like a computer in a flash drive or or whatever. That's sort of a size. Well, that's different. That it was the compute bigger. stick. So the Nook is more of like a mini PC. Or yeah, no? Nooks are mini PCs, so like, like tiny, box tiny boxes. Yeah. yeah, and they've been doing these gaming ones for the past couple of years. Uh, I reviewed the Skull Canyon Nook like four years ago, and Hades Canyon two years ago, I think. And where they try to make these small computers gaming capable. And they've been fine. The Hades Canyon was really interesting because it ran that Intel chip with the AMD graphics, that unholy combination uh, that they announced several years ago. And that chip isn't happening anymore because Intel finally has its own graphics. So this new Nook is interesting because it's bigger. It is big enough, though, to fit a 8-inch desktop GPU which is kind of fascinating. So you can have a GPU, you know, for desktop gaming quality. And there's this little like slider that holds the CPU and a lot of the other hardware. And it's this nice little self-contained box. You could just put it in your book bag. You can walk around with it. You can like take it places. Basically, it's the idea of having your desktop gaming rig as a portable thing, maybe not as portable as a laptop or even some of the older Nooks, but as a movable thing and they're partnering with some other companies so razor is jumping with this design and they're building something that's a little bigger to build essentially the first razor desktop um what's interesting is that intel is basically building up a little ecosystem here so all these things are powered by uh compute units which house the cpu and everything you could take that from one nook move it to another box later if you need more space or if you want to fit a bigger video card um, you could replace it entirely when new chips come out. That could be the idea. Uh, that, we also, that, I'm yeah. sorry, but that, that sounds like such hardcore nerd stuff. It's hardcore nerd stuff, and At- it's going to be expensive, yeah. You're right, Jolyn. You do. like. I think what's interesting about the show is that you do see this hardcore extreme nerd stuff and the kind of everyday stuff. That is the beauty of CES, if there is anything like that. Uh, we got a quick glimpse at some of Intel's upcoming chips. Tiger Lake, that's going to be their next generation 10 nanometer design. Uh, basically, the stuff we'll see in Ultrabooks towards the end of the year with better graphics, with their uh, so-called dedicated graphics. Uh, I played a couple games on that. That seemed cool. Check out my write-up. Check out my video on that. And AMD just briefly showed us some of their upcoming laptop chips, and they're getting better. And they're bringing an eight-core chip to you know premium ultra portables, which is a space where AMD really wasn't anywhere. So you have eight cores. You have decent Radeon graphics. Um, I think we're going to really see a really interesting laptop 
ecosystem competition this year moving forward so it will be fun yeah. to finally see amd maybe at some point become um not the brand of or not the skew of laptop that like costs a lot cheaper than everyone yeah. else not the cause... budget laptop like amd actually putting the fight to intel um I, I think there's a lot of cool stuff there so there's that beyond all the computer and chip stuff we also saw a lot of cars and car tech uh i just wanted to highlight a couple we saw the sony car that i mentioned I don't think um, I don't think I ever would have imagined that Sony would build a concept car to show off all of its stuff, but they rolled out a car at their keynote here at CES. I think for me, it's the biggest surprise of the show. I spent I about like yeah, it's it's really cool. I spent like seven minutes in it, uh, getting a little tour, and it looks and feels great. But the key is that you know it's Sony hardware all around, so. It has a Sony camera sensors instead of side view mirrors. Uh, it has a digital rear view mirror. Like it's just camera sensors, uh, entertainment tech all around. It has 360 reality audio. So they're just really trying to show the world like what Sony's tech can do to build like the the proper cool entertainment car. Um, is it's there, an interesting idea. Is there a PlayStation built into it? No, but there are a lot of screens. A lot of screens. So like you're basically in a like a 360 degree theater in the car in the back seat or something. There, the entire front dashboard is just like all separate screens, and then there are two screens behind the driver and passenger seat. So the rear passengers will be able to like watch stuff. Um, it takes advantage of all the speakers for like surround sound if you're watching a movie. Probably not the best thing if you're no. on a long drive, but no. you know I, I could see it being useful. Um, do you have any thoughts on the Mercedes Avatar car? Which is um, a weird thing. Yo, so James Cameron was at CES <laughs> and he was on Mercedes' stage, I guess, uh, showing off the Avatar. I thought they could have called it the Avatar. The Avatar, come on. That would have been clever. Um, I I had thoughts, yeah. It's it's wild. It's <laughs> that picture, I mean, if y'all have seen pictures of it, or if you have not, definitely go look for it. It's got like what can best be described <laughs> as scales, like like rope. I don't know mechanical skills on the back of it, on the hood. I guess it's then... desi- it's like inspired by the designs of the movie Avatar too. So like it looks like one of those weird wild animals in, yeah. in the movie. It's they were called crazy. bionic flaps. I think is the word that Mercedes was using. <laughs> I want to I... have flaps in my car. That's Definitely. exactly what I want to have. Don't know what is going to happen with those. What are they good? What are they good for? Like acne? I don't know. But... I don't know. Uh, that that car is weird too because it looks like it has no doors. But it actually has, like, these clear glass panels that rise up. Yeah. Nothing about it seems functional or interesting. Nothing practical Yeah. It, well, it, so we were talking to R- Roberto Baldwin, who writes about cars for us, and he says this is their grand statement about sustainable car making, which, sure, I guess, whatever. I think Make- they just wanted to roll out a crazy concept on stage with James Cameron, so sure. I guess it's sustainable because it looks like a, a living being, and so it's bio friendly. I don't know, but my whole thing is like Mercedes's car, and and you know, as we we'll probably talk about this a little bit more. But as we judge categories for the best of CES awards, we have to think about like whether something or not should win. And the Mercedes versus the Sony car, you know, like between the two, I think the Sony car has a little bit more merit just because the Sony car serves as a vehicle. Mm-hmm. To show off its like actual upcoming tech, like Sony is actually going into making lidar cameras for self-driving cars, yep. so that makes sense. Whereas Mercedes was just like, "Here is <laughs> something that should have been at Art Basel." <laughs> yeah, it's a weird, wild thing. It looks like a, a Batman villain's car, maybe. Like it looks like on that level of conceptually, just insane. Um, what else? What else around transportation? There was also Toyota's Woven City, right? Which is this. Just crazy concept of a sustainable city. 
people just go nuts at CES. I don't even know. The car sure, makers I like are the, that. I, like I love it. Out. I love it. The car makers are the wildest ones. So, Toyota Woven City is also kind of a concept where they've basically, it's it's sort of like a smart city, but around sustainability, if I'm not wrong. And it's just not a car. And I did not expect Toyota to be like so grand in its vision, but Toyota has been making like accessibility tech mm-hmm. for a while in its other divisions, so it makes a lot of sense to me. I just don't. So, know. what is Woven City? Basically, Toyota decided to convert a former factory near Mount Fuji into this small town where people are gonna, according to them, live, work, and research mobility. And it sounds to me just like a campus for a Toyota, um, but it's not limited to Toyota technology or Toyota employees. It's also going to be opened up to like other uh, researchers and partners to conduct experiments in this little town. Um, there's like plans for the city to to like work as a petri dish for mm-hmm. tech in like self-driving cars i guess so like there'll be three types of lanes on the roads um but no actual normal cars right like well yeah so one of one yeah no normal ones for autonomous vehicles the second for like personal mobility devices (laughs) so like i guess your ease bikes and your segways you know and then the third is just like just walking only lane so it doesn't sound like they're gonna like allow real cars this this sounds like biodome for like next generation transportation and living and honestly like if uh if like this is the thing like come live in this mountainside you know weird sustainable village with toyota I could see doing it. Like, it sounds interesting. It yeah. sounds like Eureka, except for maybe fewer mishaps. I don't uh, know. Oh, man, for Toyota's Sherlin sake. once again makes a random sci-fi series reference. Well, I mean, you know me. I love my random sci-fi series. Um, yeah, so I wasn't, I mean, Toyota is not really actually, like, announcing this as a product at CES, but it's a concept. It's a nice vision to show the company's commitment to making good transportation technology for the future. And... I guess CES is the best place to do it, right? Like, what mm-hmm. a better way to tell people, hey, come check out this small little tower. I could, I could see them doing, like, a big Jurassic Park reveal, too. Like, just bringing a bunch of press to the middle of a mountain in Japan. It's like, hey, we built a city. And then they all die. And then they all die. I would and love And then it. the dinosaurs come out. So, CES, we see all sorts of stuff. It is very much a show about TVs, though, and new TV tech and kind of where the industry is going. Um... I will say I was surprised by how many 8K TVs I saw this year. Uh, LG has 8K OLED. Samsung has 8K QLED. Sony has 8K Super LED TVs. And they're all showing the same stupid YouTube 8K clips. Like, the content is not there. But for some reason, they're selling 8K as their premium uh, TV options. Uh, They are... All these things are going to upscale 4K content or 1080p. But it's just so... It is so pointless. Like, this is me. Like, my curmudgeonly thing is I don't like pointless tech. I don't like making consumers pay for your stupid experiments before the stuff is fully baked. So well, you're curmudgeonly about everything. Yeah, but it, there's a point. Because if you sit back and listen to the marketing for all these stupid companies, like, all they're like, oh, I guess you got to throw out your 4K TV and get an 8K TV now, even though there's no content. And even though, moving forward, if you buy one of these 8K TVs, there's a good chance that you're, it won't support some of the technologies that do end up making 8K mainstream. Like, that's what happened with 4K. If you bought a first or even early second generation 4K TV, you didn't get HDR. You didn't get any of the good stuff that people wanted in 4K. So I'm just saying, buyer buyer beware. Um, In terms of 4K stuff, though, there is still some stuff that really excited me. I think LG is doing a great job of pushing their OLEDs forward. So last year they added NVIDIA G-Sync support, and that is the sort of, like, 
Uh, refresh rate matching that matches up with the frame rate of a game basically helps to eliminate image artifacts and bad things. It makes games look good. And that technology is going to be in all their TVs. They're going to have filmmaker mode, which is something that kills motion smoothing. It is like director approved uh, by a lot of Hollywood directors that just makes your movies look better without having the ugliness and the soap opera effect of motion smoothing. So, you know, there's there's a lot of good stuff. Vizio is making an OLED TV and we don't have pricing. We don't have many details, but we've seen it. It looks good. And the whole thing about Vizio is that they make cool TV tech cheaper. I think for many years... Vizio's TVs look better than Sony's. They look better than Samsung's because Vizio was into full array backlighting and all that fun stuff. Uh, a Vizio OLED is just a really fascinating thing. Uh, there, there are certainly other things too, sir. Right, Sherlyn? Like, there's a weird. TV. I yo so okay so so before I get into the weird, I I want to say that like I super agree with you on the whole like yeah it's everyone's trying trying to beat each other to the punch. It's just a big race to see who can get their 8K consumer set out there. Um, isn't the point of, I mean, do you think they're going to go beyond 8K? Because isn't 8K kind of like the, the, um, same resolution as the real world? Like, that's the whole uh, point. I don't think 8K is officially, it's more like, I think people are saying like 16, you know, 16 My or Lord. up could be more, but also to really see the difference, uh, at that resolution, you need a TV that's like 80 inches or more. Yeah. So a lot of them were really big, but. I, I still don't think we're at that point where people are going to be buying giant TVs. I guess if you live in a mansion where you can fit in your 8K 80-inch TV, then this will excite you. But no, I mean, I so I, <laughs> in terms of TV tech, because I live in a tiny-ass apartment, I don't really care about TVs. Like, I don't I don't want to put a 65-inch thing on my in my room because then half my space is gone and I can't wear clothes or something. So I was more intrigued by Samsung's announcements, which one of which was the one that was first and foremost <laughs> most interested in was the smaller frame. So now there's going to be like a 35-inch model of the frame. I've seen the frame at my friend's apartments and it looks really nice. I really want one, but it's always been like close to like at least 49 inches, I think. Mm -hmm. And so now there's a 35-inch model, which hopefully will be cheaper and then I can get one. (laughs) But the... Samsung also just like decided to roll out quite literally this thing called a Zero, which is a vertical first television set. So it's an... It's like imagine like a, a... your laptop screen or a tablet and then basically like 27-ish inches or so on uh, its own stand with rollers that you can attach to the bottom. So I don't know, like a presentation notice board that you can like roll around wherever you need it. I The idea is, and this is Samsung's idea here, that um, this is targeting the Gen Z mobile first audience. They're watching vertical video and so... We need a monitor that can grow up with them. I guess the same way Chromebooks are growing up. Even, never mind that they're not actually watching stuff on their TVs. Like, that's... The, nobody's no. asking for the TV to do this. But okay. Okay, to, Sam. To, to be fair, I mean, you, know, you can also flip the screen so that it goes back to, like, regular landscape I do feel like the, the CES mantra is uh, the OK Boomer for CES is, oh, no. okay, Samsung. Okay, Samsung. Okay, Samsung. And you're we're going to talk about some robot stuff. But they are such a dumb company sometimes. It's amazing. Man. So I don't know if you're if you're the kind of person that want that were like watching TikTok videos on loop on your phone and wish there were like a bigger display you could let, let play them on or like want to watch Snap Originals on there. Hey, enjoy. But there's not that much vertical first content, really. <laughs> and enjoy only, rotating your TVs like a crazy person. It would be it would be a fun exercise <laughs> instead of yoga. You know what I mean? So 
But did, wasn't there like some news also around like content that is vertical for us here at the show, which we weren't actually expecting? Yeah, I mean, we'll talk more about this. Uh, Quibi finally launched, or not officially launched, but they give us more details about their mobile streaming video service this year at CES. I'll talk more about that uh, later in the show, but yeah, vertical video is a big part of it too, yeah. For me, one of the things I really like about CES is getting to see things on the show floor that I, because of my work, wouldn't normally get to see. So we, I am kind of, I think, the resident like beauty tech person uh, on the team. Not because I'm the most beautiful person on the team, even though that is completely the truth, but because I guess like I care a lot about skincare and makeup and stuff. Um, and CES is has strangely in the past few years become kind of the place to see these things um in years past i've seen like a smart facial mask machine which really didn't do all that much and then there's people that used like tech to do like custom formulation for foundation which is very important Mm -hmm. because uh, diversity and inclusivity these are this these are ways that tech can help beauty meet those like ideals or like try to Mm -hmm. i can see that and i mean honestly like there's Skincare is a thing I have to look at too, just because uh, yeah, I don't have great skin, so I have to think about that. I am I am looking forward to the day when there's like nanotech collagen replacements or something for like uh, facial uh, things. Dude, that, that, that would be, be super, super cool. cool. So what yeah. I did see this year at the show was, um, let's start with the like startup year one because there's one also from L'Oreal that is also interesting. Um, there's this company out of. Procter, well, not a company. There's an inventor out of Procter and Gamble's labs that made a device called the Opti Precision Skincare Thermal Printer, okay. which I know. Think about it. This is a printer that prints onto your face um, pigments <laughs> that directly only cover up your blemishes. So, like when you put on makeup, if you if you put on makeup, you know that like you're basically slathering foundation all across your face, and then you spot conceal with a concealer um but this printer basically it's a roll it's like a handheld rolly thing that you drag across your skin and you go back and forth maybe like you know three or four times and it deposits pigment again it has a scanner on board and a blue light so that it can see exactly where those dark spots are and it deposits a very white very like pigmented white to cover those up and then when it doesn't like when your skin's like not blemished at all it'll just like leave it be so you're allowing more of your skin to breathe more of your pores to breathe and at the same time targeting just those spots of concern and in addition to pigment or covering it up you could also like put skin lightening um, ingredients in there to help you over time target just the blemishes and lighten them if you want to and i i saw the tech it, it actually worked that's cool which that's like cool. was surprising and um i i think that's something that's actually useful mm-hmm. i can see that I, I will say one quick tech tip for i don't know facial stuff for everybody buy moisturizer with spf people like that is something we have that tech it is out there and it's kind of wild to me that uh yeah people go out into the world and are allowing the sun's gamma rays to destroy their skin we have the technology stop that the other thing i saw um that i alluded to was the l'oreal um it's called the perso and when i first heard the pitch for this i was like no you you gotta be kidding it's a, again, handheld. So it's like the size of like, a, I guess, a bottle of water. Mm-hmm. And it contains, a, the words are patented motorized cartridge system. It basically has three vials of ingredients in there. You can swap out these for any of like any ingredients you want. You can put a serum, a moisturizer, whatever in there. 
and each time you need you know to put product on your skin and this is more for like a serum again or, or moisturizer you just go to the app push the button and then there's ai in the software that'll figure out like hey your location is for now like for me now nevada where it's a desert and you need a bit more moisturizer um and it's the uv index is really high today so you need more spf and then each time you push that button it drops out like a custom formulated blend of product for you right at that time of day that you press it and i thought that was super cool uh, you set up the app and you also kind of like enter your personal skin concerns you take three pictures and the l'oreal software figures out what you do need based on it, what it sees on your face too so this is taking personalized skincare to the extreme like to another level and it's already existed before in terms of like companies like Curology creating custom formula for your face. But now you're getting one at every drop, like each push of a button doles out something different. And I thought that that was wild. Um, it's not going to be available for a while. It's going to come out in 2021. But, you know, I could see that just being the future. Honestly, I feel like we could see people traveling with these things and having one in every home. And all they do is just buy up the cartridge. <laughs> It wouldn't be CES without a couple truly weird experiences, and I will recount for you a weird dinner Sherlyn and I had. Uh, we got an invite from a company called Insight to go to their launch dinner at CES, and uh, it came in a really weird email. It had this crazy like marketing video about it was a company positioning itself to learn every single detail about our lives so that they could tell us more about our lives. And, you know, I scrolled to the bottom of the email. I was like, oh, property of, uh, you know, HBO. It was like, oh, oh, this is a Westworld thing. So, yeah, it seems like this is a preview of Vegas World or a company that's going to be a big deal in Westworld Season 3. And, you know, the dinner itself, uh, I just kind of went to go see, like, what what are they going to tell us, basically? And it all started out pretty, uh, I think it was pretty creepy from the start. Because Sherlyn and I, yeah, go ahead we get there and people immediately come up to us and they're like oh Sherlyn hi Devendra and mm -hmm. they like they know exactly who you are because clearly they've been studying for me I wasn't too surprised by that just because like PR people tend to know who you are yeah it, but it was like extra PR it was somebody who like knew they knew my daughter's name they knew what I was working on like they immediately engaged in a conversation yeah. as a like an old friend or somebody you actually yeah. know would which I think and as an immediate in you know introduction to somebody is very jarring. It's very, it's very like, actually. oh, whoa, hey, what? It's like you've been stalking me. Yeah. I mean, they, I, I think they tried to kind of like sl like start slow and ramp it up. So like the first few things they said to me and you, I think, were like, oh, how was your flight from New York? Mm -hmm. And that sort of thing. Like, we know where you live. Mm -hmm. um, but then as the dinner progressed, like we started, we, we waited in line, signed waivers, which, by the way, I read that waiver real carefully. It's a crazy waiver. Um, well, also, we were introduced to a guy who was kind of our guide. His name yes. was Anthony. He's an actor, you know. Uh, but he was our guide to the world, and he did a great job of, like, he basically memorized a script yeah. about all of us. And then he took that information and started making introductions to everybody else at our table. Yeah. And, like, it was this weird thing where, like, I, I'm not somebody who goes to a lot of parties or at least feels comfortable, like, if I don't know anybody at a party. If it's, like, something for a friend or something, I'm more down with that. This is sort of – I could see this being a service where, like – you just sign up for it, and it does all the work of introducing you to people, doing the cold opens, like starting conversations. Like 
I don't feel like we're actually that far away from a company doing something like this. I completely agree. And I, I, I thought that that actually surprisingly made a lot of sense. They Not only did they um, introduce us throughout the cocktail reception uh, hour before dinner actually started to people we would be sitting with, but they also matched us to people that would be like, we would have things in common with at our tables. So the conversation flowed really naturally. Like I was seated uh, next to Jane, who I still don't know if is a real person or not. Um, it was a very Westworld situation where we're like, okay, who are the other actors? Clearly there have to be plants at our tables. And who, Jane was an ethics professor. Ethics professor. And I was Chicago. like, you've been stalking my Twitter. You know I love The Good Place. And yeah. you know that I want to talk about ethics, about Kant. Um, meanwhile, we had a lot of other, um, the other people at our tables were like also people who were in media or in marketing. And every, throughout the dinner, in between the courses of food, which by the way, they picked out for us, um you know anthony would come back out and say oh hey by the way one of the people at our table his name was nick and they were like oh hey nick um i know this isn't like anything like your you know semester abroad but you know the food here is quite adventurous still like that sort of thing <laughs> and it was kind of strange because i think it was for me i kept looking around to be like all right this is a game of clue right we got to figure out like yeah. who, what's going on but it doesn't actually lead to that it was just like here's what we could do it was a weird experiential thing well i also saw like a crew in the back um kind of listening to everything so i think after a point we were like there are microphones here like because yes. we were having a conversation somewhere on the floor and like jane mentioned something about her son. son trying to start a podcast and then by the time we got back to the table to sit down and start eating Anthony came over and then started talking about, oh, hey, how how is your son's podcast going? It's like it, either she's a plant and he kind of had that information or they're also listening in with like Farfield mics to everything we're saying. It was amazing because like what was happening was and I noticed this and I didn't want to creep you out, but mm-hmm. um, we were all at the table when this happened. The sun thing, too. <laughs> and we were like, oh, there must be mics because, yeah, the sun thing happened. Mm-hmm. But then like I noticed that they would talk to you about Sophia a lot and. But they didn't never mention your wife's name. They said they said. They but then no. Yeah. But then at the table, I talked to you and I mentioned Raquel's oh. name. Then they came out and he said exactly. Oh, I didn't notice that. Out. Okay. Yeah. So I didn't want to creep you out too much because I was like, I was just like, I wasn't doing that on purpose. I just was like, I think they know about yeah. Raquel, blah blah blah. And then like he shows up, and he goes, so how uh, semi regards to Raquel? And I was like, yeah, you're definitely listening. This is weird. Here. This is weird. I will say before we started dinner, there was an introduction from like one of the like so called founders Ms. of this. Miss Quinlan. Was yes, Miss Quinlan. Was that actually? Miss Quinlan or was it like an underling but she had like the CES key- she had a keynote that sounded like a CES type thing it's like oh we want it our goal is to consolidate all the world's information and know everything about you and it was both like hopeful and visionary and terrifying at the also same time absolutely terrifying yeah. and she didn't seem like she was human either the way yeah. she was talking she I have video of this been. if you guys ever want to watch it but like yeah. it's she was like and together we can build a better future she could have so easily been again. a westworld bot like absolutely yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. um and throughout the night also the theme was they were like they kept saying we have selected you specially because of your status as an influencer and whatever they just they kept trying to make us feel very special to at this event and um I just at the end, me and Devendra unfortunately had to leave early, so I had to skip dessert. We left before is, the giant keynote. Can you yeah. imagine? Yeah. Can you imagine missing dessert? Me, but I was. That's why <laughs> I was very bummed. But um, I asked a friend afterwards, and what happened was they ended up kind of explaining that they yeah they learned all of this about you from what's publicly available, and they 
called up a person. Her name was Elizabeth.、Mm-hmm. According to them, this is a member of like the like the guests, not a not a plant. But everyone,、uh-huh. nobody believes that. And they were like, "Here's what we know about Elizabeth," and they like have a slideshow about her life. Yeah, and that's just nuts. Like. I signed up. I went back and looked at the waiver again. And I was like, I don't know if you're like dropping any hints here. It is well. The、What、waiver has like、away? a. It has a name of like uh like a for, waiverforever waverforever dot com. Go check it out. It looks like a Google website. It looks like a GeoCities. Yeah, yeah. Google it's、website. just. I think they had a lot. Of, it is a real legal waiver, but it's also like I think they had a lot of fun with that idea. I wish we could have stuck around for the whole thing. And when we left, they gave us these sheets of like. Predictions for your life, and also life expectancy predictions. And I, I got like eighty years, ten months, five days, which、yeah. is just seeing that written down is so like, oh, that's creepy. That is、terrifying. weird. And mine was eighty-five years, six months, and five weeks, or something like that. And then,、uh, which is yay, I beat Devendra. But、um, <laughs> they also had a little like a bioe thing on that、um, on that sheet of paper where mine was talking about, oh, your focus on mental health is、uh, going to be your way forward in the future, or something like that. But that's the pin tweet、yeah. on my Twitter.、Account. For me, it was like something about Taipei could be your future. I'm like, okay, <laughs> what? I do like going to Computex in Taipei. Dumplings. So, what other weird things have you seen at the show, Sherlyn? I mean, Impossible was back with <laughs> pork. Hey, and、uh, I've never had Impossible meat before. So Impossible、mm-hmm. is this like plant-based meat. I think everyone knows what it is. I tried a bon mi with the Impossible pork patty. That could be nice. Yeah. And I, I mean, for a person that's never tried it before, it was alright. It didn't have like, if, like it, like everyone said, it didn't have the texture, the bite that I was expecting.、Mm-hmm. And I think maybe because the plant-based meat just doesn't have that much taste, they over-seasoned it a little bit, so it's very salty. Yeah. But it, I mean, I could move, I could move to like plant-based meat alternatives forever. That's like, interesting. I I yeah, I'm looking forward to trying that.、Uh, I did get to see Quibi in action, and this、mm. is the mobile video streaming startup.、Um, I talked with Jeffrey Katzenberg. I talked with Meg Whitman about this. So go check out my report. But what's interesting about Quibi is that it is a premium subscription. Mobile video thing, so they're going to have a bunch of shows, a bunch of movies.、Uh, everything is ten minutes in length at most. But what's really interesting is that they developed this technology that lets you go from portrait mode viewing to landscape mode viewing, and like back and forth. So the directors have actually cut and framed both tile, like both versions of the show.、Um, it's also synchronized over an audio track. So. It is just kind of a wild thing.、Um, it I, I sounds feel like, like Snap originals, I guess, but Snap doesn't do this. Like、I、Snap,、know. you're stuck in port- you're stuck in vertical.、Um, but I think that combination is really interesting, and also they can use that for interactivity. I was watching a scene of a show where a character was like typing furiously on their phone,、uh, and I could see that in landscape mode. But when I turned to portrait mode, I just saw the screen of their phone, and I saw them them like going through Snapchat and Instagram and everything. It is a really Interesting way of like presenting media, and I think that interactivity has more potential than they think. But you know, it remains to be seen. They have a ton of funding,、uh, they have a ton of stars and talent involved, but I don't quite know if、uh, if this is going to succeed. So there's plenty at CES 2020 that we didn't get to talk about on this episode, but don't worry, we've got wall to wall coverage of the show、uh, on Engadget.com, including the official Best of CES Awards, which Engadget Awards and judges. Stay tuned tomorrow for a special interview episode. I'll have a bit of our conversation with Quibi folks.、Uh, Sherlyn will be talking to the founder of Lioness, the sex tech company. And at the end of this episode, I'm also going to be talking with John Meda. He's a big thinker about tech and design and tech culture, and we had a great conversation about his book. Oof. 
that is that is a big show, and that is the end of our episode. Thank you always for listening. Our theme music is by Game Composer Dale North. Our outro music is by our very own Terrence O'Brien. The podcast is produced by Ben Elman. You can find Devendra online at at Devendra on Twitter, and you can find me talking about movies at the Slash Filmcast at slashfilm.com. If you need tips about beauty tech, I am at Sherlyn Lowe on Twitter. Should we check anything else out at CES? You can email us to tell us at podcast at engadget.com. Please leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe on literally anything that gets podcasts, including Spotify. And now, here's our interview with John Maida. So thank you for joining us, John, on the Engadget podcast. Uh, can you just give us a sense, who are you? What do you do? What are you known for? I'm John Maida, and I'm the global Chief Experience Officer at Publicis Sapient. I'm known for connecting design with technology and business. Excellent. And uh, yeah, and you also have a new book, right? I have a new book called How to Speak Machine, which enables anyone with no computer science background to finally understand the cloud. So I guess I just have to ask you, how do you, how do you speak to machines? You speak machine if you have been coding and living it for a long time, uh-huh. and it's a, such a small percentage of the world that understands how automation works. So I wanted to give people a better chance at understanding, what are they saying? Gotcha. And um, can you talk about like what led you to covering this topic? I know you, you've been a big thought leader in terms of STEAM education and things like that, right? Well, I, I found that STEAM was an easy sell because it was impacting kids' education. But once you sort of like scratch away the veneer, like, so what is this tech mm-hmm. computer science coding thing? And most people don't have the patience to learn how it all works. So they talk about it, but don't get it. They can say AI, machine learning, neural networks, but what are they? Gotcha. And do you think, um, do, you, do you think it's a good thing, I guess, or do you think it's a smarter thing to kind of get people to make them more tech uh, knowledgeable at this point, uh, maybe to give them more power over the actual tech that's controlling their lives? Yeah, well, I like how you frame the question. Is it a good thing or not a good thing? I think over time I've seen that if you don't understand it, you're not empowered. Right. And you're being excluded from that special club. And so the longer you're excluded, the longer you're less empowered to actually do what Silicon Valley is showing us is strange, alien, and powerful. So I'm wondering, too, like this education, it seems like a great way to you know jump onto what Silicon Valley is doing now and kind of help people in general, I don't know, be part of this conversation, what do you think it's going to take to change the conversation? Because right now we're in, we're in a weird point where, you know, it's almost 15 years since Facebook was founded. Um, it's led to some problems in the world and the country. And I, I feel like we're seeing repercussions uh, for the consequences of this technology that has spent so many years building up at, you know, hyper growth without thinking of their consequences. Where do you think tech is now? And, you know, how do you think learning about the tech will help, you know, the next generation. I think that tech is in the same situation that sometimes the financial industry sort of like sees itself in, like, wait, are we doing the right thing or not? Um, And when you're compensated well, it's it's all okay, right? And I think that tech has such great compensation, but everyone who's involved in it is asking, is it okay to have all this data on someone and them not knowing about it? Luckily, we have things like CCPA, GDPR, things like that. But anyone in a tech company is wondering, scratching their head, is this okay? Do you think uh, I, Do you think that's a question that they're asking more now because they see the consequences of their actions? And I guess I'm wondering too, like, as we're building things, yeah. it is kind of hard. Like, I feel like the techies 
have not had to deal with the things like maybe that scientists or physicists have where like you know the people working on the manhattan project maybe had a sense of like what would happen they could say they're just building this thing but they know what it's going to be used for do you think it's a responsibility for tech companies to kind of think more about what they're building and why they're using it I think it's really hard for tech companies to own that responsibility because it's not in their business model. So if you think about it, it's even like the uh, industrialized military complex. That's another thing. Like it's in the business model to do what what, what they do. So in that sense, the tech employees also, they choose to stay. And if the comp is good, they're going to stay. So I look at it more as regular people need to understand it. And if more people understand it, understand what automation, ML, et cetera, means, they're going to be asking questions like, is this okay? And they might write to their politicians and say, I don't think that's okay. (laughs) So um, I guess what sort of knowledge do you expect, or are you asking regular people to kind of try to get on their own? Like, do you want everybody to be a programmer, or do you just want people to have a basic sense of what automation is and what it could mean for them in actuality? Well, I definitely don't want everyone to be a programmer because I, as, a, as a coder, I know it's kind of boring sometimes. Uh, sorry, I didn't want to sort of offend anybody out there, but I write code. Sometimes it's not that exciting. Um, but the reality is that if you can understand how computation works as an invisible medium that can do things like loop forever, never get tired, or be able to examine things at infinite scale and infinitesimal detail, and also model living systems as if they're real. Mm-hmm. These are three weird properties that wood, metal, paper don't do. Right. I guess we're, we're in a place, too, where the next generation of technology, right, like AI, um, things that are based on, I guess AI is kind of the big one, things that are just going to be kind of learning, and even the creators don't quite know what's happening, machine learning, things like that. We don't quite know what's going on in machine learning models. It is probably a better idea for the public to kind of have a better sense of what's going on, right? I mean, just to kind of know how it can do harm is good because then you can ask, well, how can it do good? And I'm so glad you brought up the Manhattan Project and things like that. If you look at the history of computer science, like back to 1966, in my book, I point out how Joseph Weizenbaum, who invented ELISA, Mm -hmm. the next following year, he was focused on actually concern about chatbots and AI. So he put his whole platform around, I don't think AI is good for the world if someone who has power takes control of it. And the reason why is because he grew up in Nazi Germany and fled Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. So he knew what can happen when absolute power corrupts. Gotcha. And I can understand that worry, too. Are you concerned about the rise of AI or how it's going to be used or the effect it's going to have on society? Because it seems like we could barely handle having an open social network um, because there are so many bad actors that could come in and spread false information. The networks can't keep up and police everything. With AI, it's a whole, I think, eventually going to be a whole like thing that can actually think on its own and work on its own. How do we even prepare for that? Well, I think we prepare for it by looking back into history. If you look at the first Industrial Revolution with steam, like how's that working? How does the locomotive going? That's impossible. I don't like it. I want my horse. Right, right. And then you have electricity. Like, no, no, I don't need electricity. Look what happened. Uh, I don't need a personal computer at work. Look what happened. So now in the fourth Industrial Revolution, mm-hmm. where computers are interconnected, they're on our bodies, et cetera, AI is going to happen because the data is all there to make it easy for AI to get created. Mm-hmm. So we just have to get ready for what that means. Uh, what do you think that means, actually, though? Because like, I feel like the only things really preparing us for and making us think about the potential of AI is science fiction. And science fiction has kind of led our understanding of the future, right? And 
we're getting to that point, right? The the singularity, whatever you want to call it, like we're getting to a point where that reality is going to happen. Do you think we're prepared for it? Yeah. Well, you know, I I think that the challenge now is for us to accept that it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Let's understand what it's good at okay. and what actually it's bad at too. And, you know, we talk a lot about how handmade things are hard for AI to do because that's ridiculous. I'm not going to waste that much time on it, <laughs> right? So I'd like to imagine more human pursuits versus pure machine pursuits mm-hmm. and for us to figure out what you're good at, what I'm good at, and build that relationship that way. Gotcha. So what you're saying is um, you are you just want to be nice to the AI overlords that are coming. You, you, well, you want to uh, be their friend. Well, I, 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 you know, you know, being friends, you can be friend of me sometimes sure. too, you yeah. know. But um, uh, if anything, I think fear isn't a driver for curiosity mm-hmm. and creativity. So I'm just hopeful that people will get more curious about it versus just fearful about it. Mm-hmm. See its limitations, which are going to go away eventually each year because of Moore's law or whatever law you you abide by. Mm-hmm. It's going to get better, but it's not going to get better at everything. So what's it bad at? Let's look at that. Gotcha. Um, do you agree with uh, like very notable people like uh, Elon Musk is trying to like put, just talk about AI and do things to kind of hold it back or stop it from growing so quickly? Do you agree with this mentality, or how do you think we how do you think we best confront it? Oh wow! Um, I think it's already the quote unquote genie is out of the bottle, and right. we can't really stop it. And if we don't do it, quote unquote, in North America or Europe, the Chinese will do it. It's so like it's like you can't stop it. Um, if anything, uh, I like your, your question. Am I, am I saying we'll be friends with our AI overlords? I'm saying that they're going to be there. And if we, as humanity, don't get our act together mm-hmm. and figure out what we're good at compared to, quote unquote, them or it, mm-hmm. uh, we're just going to like be victims and like feel sad. Not a good thing. Not very human. Yeah, I guess I have a hard time thinking that we'll be ready for AI or we'll know how to like coexist with it when we don't know how to coexist with social networks and we don't know how to deal with like the processing of information. Um, you're somebody who's thought about like how tech has influenced us in society for so long. What do you think are, you know, before we get to AI, before we get to our conscious machines, what are the next steps we could take as a society tech can take as an industry to kind of deal with, you know, the trouble we're having now, fake information, bad actors, not knowing how to, not knowing even how to police these social networks. Uh, where do you think we go next immediately? Uh. That's a great question. I guess the way to frame how I see it now is when we think about social networks, they're highly biased towards the photograph avatar name paradigm. Yeah. And that in, that implicitly, because of Facebook's sort of first Adam, Eve, Apple sort of plucked yeah. from how social media happened, it, everything's a dating app. And it's biased inherently against women. Mm-hmm. People ask, why aren't women on social media? It's because if you have uh, someone said, just change your avatar to a woman's face and a woman's name and see what happens. And I was like, wow, this isn't really fun. Mm-hmm. So if anything, we have to recognize the bias built into all these systems. Mm-hmm. And I think if more systems get built without, with, with less bias, we'll see better platforms emerge. Gotcha. I think I remember the days of like classic AOL Instant Messenger um, and where you didn't, you didn't know. You didn't know. All you had was a username, right? So it's like, uh, that's where ASL came from. Uh, but you just start these conversations and you kind of take it on faith that this person this person is who they say they are. But I think com- having conversations then was very different than today. Oh, I guess you were like Bruce 7223. Well, and also the fact that, you know, we believe that the best way to communicate is with our – the whole onboarding system has get your face, get your birthday, get all this personal information um, – 
Can we go backwards to GERS 2235? I'm not sure. I'm not uh-huh. saying that. But once we're conscious of it, I think we'll make better tools, better systems around it. And in terms of policing these networks or just dealing with, like, the influence of all these companies, I feel like Facebook is so huge. It has more influence than any single country. Nobody elected Mark Zuckerberg. There's really no say we have as a society against what Facebook is doing. What are things that we could do to kind of put tech in check? Is it government regulation? Is it, you know, organizations within the industry? How do we how do we kind of move towards fixing all of this? You know, when I looked at this, uh, Nate Matias, the researcher on um, hazing uh, online, he pointed out that the work he did, I think, with the Reddit platform, uh, you could re- you could you could change the 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 way people would react if you just post a message, be kind. Mm-hmm. And it's weird how, like, if you prime someone to actually be a better person, uh, people said, "No, that's not going to work." But it actually worked in the in the trials he ran. So I think it's a matter of how do we remind people that you're talking to another person mm-hmm. and maybe you want to respect their space. It's a 40-mile-per-hour zone. Right. Hello, slow down. Right, right. Um, I think more of that social etiquette will, would help a lot. It also seems like, I don't know, to me, it seems we're in a weird spot, and I don't want to sound too dystopian, but it seems like social norms are kind of breaking down, uh, certainly with political movements across the world. Like there, There's a lot of things that used to be not okay and now it's kind of okay, and then, you know, and that's kind of bled into tech and online environments. Is the problem a tech thing? Is it a societal thing? How, you know, what do you, what do you think is going on? Well, then if you add, you know, apropos to what you were saying yeah. as well, like if you have all this data available mm-hmm. of all this extreme behavior, AI will learn this extreme <laughs> behavior and be really good at it. I'm pretty sure the AI will be like, humans, you don't, you don't need to be in charge anymore. We got this. Um, so that's why I guess the optimist in me says, we have to fuel the social media and information channels with with kinder words, mm-hmm. better better conversations, mm-hmm. more long form maybe wouldn't hurt. Do you think um, Do you think there's a place for government regulation? Because you mentioned GDPR, I do feel like that's a big first step. But that's Europe, and Europe has always taken this very hard stance when it comes to regulation. Maybe sometimes over regulation. Like by the time they dealt with Microsoft and the browser monopoly, the point was moot. It was like ten years later, right? Yeah. So. There, there seems like a balance there. To me, it seems like regulation seems like at least something we need to consider more directly, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I believe that if more politicians and government folks understood how to speak machine, right. I'd feel okay. Mm-hmm. But if they don't, if they just think that Zuckerberg is the enemy, mm-hmm. and like if we take him out, all is going to be great, that's not going to change anything, right? Mm-hmm. So if more people understood what's actually happening in active policy, yes. Mm-hmm. But if people don't understand what 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 the what the what I call the upside down world of Netflix, right, right. it's like what is this world computation? It's the upside down world. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't enact policy around things they don't understand. Gotcha. That mm, I'm not sure how that works for America. I guess it seems like we're in a weird place where a lot of politicians are still asking Mark Zuckerberg to fix their iPhones. So do you, do you have faith in the next generation of upcoming you know representatives and people in government? Do you think it's a problem that will kind of fix over time? Like because the people who grew up with tech and who understand it are going to be the ones hopefully making the laws you know once in a while i get kind of excited like i know that um different politicians are emerging like whether they were a webmaster yeah or they're an entrepreneur former entrepreneur in silicon valley mm-hmm. they are emerging and, and they know how to speak machine mm-hmm. uh, but they are a minority yeah and they don't 
when they when they talk about these things, people are like fourth industrial revolution, automation, <laughs> autonomous vehicles. Right. What are you talking about? I just want my coal jobs back. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So I don't know if it can get through as a signal, and I'm, but I'm hopeful. Gotcha. And, you know, we're here at CES, which is a – it is both a wonderland and I think a nightmare dystopia. What – you know, any highlights for you, any any major things that you see as just, like, terrifying elements of tech in society right now? Well, you know, I, the regulation question made me think about how, you know, if we in, where, if we in Europe or we in North America or whatever have all this regulation, if China doesn't yep. – the innovation is going to be so much better in China. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. just walking the floors, I was like, wow, you know, it's like five Chinese companies selling interesting APIs to do machine learning. I'm like, huh, you can do that with that kind of case? That's an edge case, I thought. No, you made it into a product. Mm. So I kind of feel like we have to be aware that the entire world is innovating. Uh-huh. And if we don't, I think that different parts of the world will easily fall behind and get disrupted. So that that's a good broader point. Um, let's bring it down to like maybe consumer tech because I saw a lot of I saw some nice ideas. I saw some really dumb ideas, and I really want to talk to you about like Samsung in particular, which is a company that baffles me because some of their products are great. And I think like they can invest a lot of money and create something like the Galaxy Note and make big screen phones so capable. And then some things they'll create something like Bali, which is the little robotic ball that follows you around your house. I don't I don't understand what is what is Samsung thinking and. How do you think they approach design? Because I feel like you're somebody who would understand how they're building products and maybe what's wrong with it sometimes. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think it's important to remember that Samsung was didn't control the world. Sony did for a while yeah. or Apple didn't. So it's, it's fun to kind of watch all these different trends of things. My takeaway from seeing Bali uh, and also walking in the floor of CS and robotics is that Asia tends to think of robots differently. Mm-hmm whether it's anime culture or their religion, mm-hmm. the, the sort of like tendencies, uh, robots are okay. So my takeaway was Bali and other robotic platforms are going to do well in Asia, also for the aging issue too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I was a little freaked out when I saw a robot for your pet to exercise your pet, and I was yeah. like, okay, this is new. <laughs> so, well, in America, our, our counterexample was the robot that brings you toilet paper when okay. you're in the tower, the, the Charmin. <laughs> Which is, I can't wait until that robot becomes conscious, and then you have to tell it what its purpose in life is to bring me toilet paper. It's great. Oh, that's good. <laughs> well, uh, um, so, so what I, that's amazing. And so many, like, fold a shirt robot, et cetera. But anyways, yeah. um, I'm optimistic about the, the robot culture, especially for elder care, mental and physical care, because that's going to be a huge thing in Asia, mm-hmm. like in spades. Mm-hmm. And I think... We in non-Asia might be able to learn from that, take away good lessons from it. Definitely. That's a, a big problem with Japan and its aging population right now. Have you ever seen the movie uh, Rojin Z? I'm just going to throw this out there. What's that one? Rojin Z. It was an anime movie. I believe it was in the 80s, but it's kind of stuck in my mind because it was all about senior citizens in these like very highly technical beds. And I think they start to revolt, and they start to, like, take the power of the beds and just start to, like, wreak havoc on the world. So it's like senior citizens using tech to fight back against a society that's forgotten them. It seems like Rome's going to get to that point. That's cool. Well, and I was lucky in my younger life to work with AARP uh-huh. in my 30s, and I was able to actually learn what it's like to be older, mm-hmm. like over 50, et cetera. And it came very clear to me how my mentality of older and younger was off. The second thing is I learned about how the population pyramid would become the population rectangle. 
Right. So this idea of lots of young people, fewer older people, is going to go away, and instead there's a general age population is actually constant throughout the ages. That's a weird world mm -hmm. that we're entering now. Gotcha. And for that world, you think like, yeah, robotics, assistive tech, like that's going to be a bigger deal for all of us, I guess. Absolutely. A thousand percent. Excellent. Any big takeaways for you? I guess we're starting a whole new year of technology. It's, it feels like a fresh start. Um, I guess only within a couple of days of that fresh start, things got a little rough. Uh, but when it comes to tech, uh, what do you see going on for this year and for the next decade? Like, what are the big changes you think tech in America and in the world kind of needs to take? Um, you know, I love VR and AR mm -hmm. because I've been waiting for it to actually work and be useful. Same, yeah. <laughs> and and there's so many platforms out there. It's like the early days of like, you know, an Apple II, a PC, whatever. There's so many experiments out there that it's likely will be more where we're going to use it more often. But for the use case, it isn't clear. Is it training? You know, is it just gaming? We don't know. Um, but... I think I'm much more curious about how technology gets used for older people. And the neat thing about AR is that, you know, if you're older and you never traveled to the fancy Las Vegas hotel, mm -hmm. you can put your glasses on and look at it. I just did it with my mom, who's like 83 years old. She was like, I've never been there, John. Mm -hmm. And I pulled out my, 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 my VR rig <laughs> and she was like, oh, I want to go visit New York. Which, uh, which rig did you put on your mom? Uh, Quest. Okay. Oh my gosh! Yeah, uh, it's so inexpensive. It's mm -hmm. scary. It's also Facebook, so it's also scary. Also but, yeah. <laughs> but, but, um, uh, what a what a, what an example of how far we've come, mm -hmm. and it's only going to get better. Um, so VR excites me. Um, I I love how we're selling software as if it were a product. Mm -hmm. This uh, thing I noticed how there's like people are selling their APIs yeah. mm -hmm. on CES floor. <laughs> That's like weird. Yeah, but. You know, how do you make like a, a upside down world like computational service into a product on the CES floor? I imagine we're going to see more of that, which means that the clientele is going to shift as well, too, I imagine. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine shopping for an API at a physical like, well, actually, that happens a lot. Yeah, yeah. But this is like blending the two together. Gotcha. And I guess, I guess for consumers, we're getting things like, you know, IFT, IFTTT yeah, integration, exactly. and it's like that you're building, you're using an API to kind of build services for yourself. Yeah. You expect to see more DIY things like that to give people more control over ah, their tech? That's great. Well, you know, you have the ideas clearly, so I'm going to serve up your ideas. <laughs> uh, I could imagine a Home Depot oh, nice. for, for this kind of work, whether it's the DIY or contractor grade. Mm -hmm. um, maybe that's a different take, especially as we blend IoT and pure software together. Mm -hmm. Uh, you remember there were those those nerdy electronic stores in the past. Yep. Maybe there's a there's a whole line of new Home Depot like Apple stores waiting to be made. Actually, and Home Depot is still very popular, still doing very well. I can imagine I could see sections where it's just like, okay, here's your smart light bulb section, and they have it, but it's not very organized, and you don't know how to build a whole ecosystem in your home. They, I guess they have to get smarter about that. Well, you know, at, at all of these uh, giant places like Lowe's, mm -hmm. if you walk in and there's some tech. Yeah. And there's people who can make stuff. They're not engineers. Yep. But maybe there's a weird blending of this, like, Needham, you do electronics culture and Lowe's. I don't know. Could so, happen. yeah, Lowe's or Home Depot could be the next Radio Shack. You heard it here first. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. It could happen. It could happen. All right. Nerd. Thank you so much, John. Nerds unite. <laughs> there you go. <laughs>